Let's turn to Psalm 5 in our Bibles. We will once again look at God's redeeming grace for sinners like us. And it's only because of his grace that any of us can sing out to him and say, you're my everything, you're what I want. So, Psalm chapter 5, let's pray before we begin. Father, you are so good to us because many times we chase after 10,000, 10 million different things that we think will satisfy us and we repeatedly come back to the truth that only your son can satisfy the thirst that we feel in our hearts and in our souls. So we come once again, God, to say, forgive us. Let the magnet of your grace draw us in once again that you love sinners who turn from sin and say, Jesus is my everything. So help us once again to say that this morning and get great honor and glory as you transform us by that very grace that draws us in. For your glory and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Zombies are everywhere. I mean that literally. Yes, zombies are everywhere in pop culture. Zombies are very popular right now. The zombie apocalypse is upon us from video games to the hit AMC show, The Walking Dead, to the new movie that I think opened this last week or two, World War Z. Hollywood is eating up zombies right now, no pun intended. The zombie apocalypse is upon our culture and there is nothing that you can do about it. But I also mean that literally. The zombie apocalypse is upon us now. We've always had zombies in the world. In fact, there are probably some zombies in this room right now. The living dead are here right now. Some of you were once numbered among the living dead. I used to be a zombie. I was a part of the living dead You see, zombies, the living dead, entered this world in Genesis 3 when Adam sinned. Immediately, Adam and Eve, the very first human beings, they died spiritually when they disobeyed God. And just like that, with one bite of whatever fruit it was, the zombie apocalypse began. Every human being born into this world is born a zombie, born spiritually dead, separated from God, and unable to come to him apart from his effectual calling. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses of your sins. And every human being that does not trust in and treasure Jesus Christ is a zombie. They are the living dead. Sure, they have jobs and they have nice gardens and they they give to charities and they do all the things that human beings do, but they are dead spiritually apart from Jesus. They are the living dead. They are zombies. So zombies are everywhere. We are surrounded by them. And David was surrounded by them too when he wrote Psalm 5. 
Even the way David describes his enemies in Psalm 5 seems like he was watching Night of the Living Dead as he composed this psalm. He calls them evildoers, bloodthirsty. Their throats are open graves. Sounds like zombies to me. But I think David is so vivid and so graphic in Psalm 5 because he wants to teach us that we, like him, can survive the zombie apocalypse that has come upon us. Here's our big idea today. Never take the presence of God for granted. How do you survive the zombie apocalypse? You never take the presence of God for granted. The way you live in the presence of the living dead, zombies, if you will, enemies of God, unbelievers, is by remembering just how close your God actually is. Because it can be easy for the living dead to capture your heart and your mind because they are so easy to see and so easy to hear. But you drown them out by getting into God's presence. And that's exactly what David does in Psalm 5. So look at verses 1 through 3 and hear the word of the Lord. Give ear to my words, O Yahweh. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray, O Yahweh. In the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. David does not take the presence of the Lord, the presence of Yahweh, lightly. There's a freshness to David's prayer here. His relationship with God is not stale. It's not static. He is not passive. His relationship with God is real and it's raw. David believes in prayer. You see that when he says, give ear, listen up, consider my groaning, pay attention, Lord. The word for groaning that's used here is only used here and in Psalm 39.3 in the Old Testament. It's it's a word that has to do with murmuring, groaning, sighing. It's like David is so upset that he can't quite put his prayer into good Hebrew language. He's distraught. He's desperate. So he's moaning. He's struggling to find the word, so he's just groaning and hoping that God can interpret it. It's as if David already knew that Yahweh was the God of Romans 8.26, which says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. David would read Romans 8.26 and say, yep, that's my God. David does know his God, and that's why he says, my king and my God. He prays so boldly, so desperately, so mumbly, if you will, and with such bad Hebrew and with such inexpressive groans, precisely because he knows that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, will listen to him. In fact, in verse 3, David says that Yahweh hears his voice. He knows that the Lord is listening to every prayer and every jumbled syllable that comes out of David's desperate heart. And that's the God that we serve. He hears 
every moan and groan of your heart. The problem, though, is that when I just said, he hears every moan and groan of your heart, our tendency is to yawn and to think, yeah, yeah, I heard that before. Everybody knows that. God listens, yada, yada, yada. We've just grown accustomed to the fact that God hears our prayers. We're not struck by that fact anymore. It doesn't stop us in our tracks. Instead of saying, yes, it's true. Yahweh listens to our prayers even when they are Romans 8.26 groaning with bad English kind of prayers. He listens. Instead of getting excited like that, we yawn. Don't trivialize prayer. The king condescends. He stoops down. He, He leans in close and he listens. God listens to our verbs, our nouns, our adverbs, our questions, our complaints, and he even speaks mumble-jumble, that inexpressible language that can ooze out of a worn-out, desperate heart. And that's why we should never take the presence of God for granted. David doesn't. David has put two and two together. If Yahweh listens to my prayers and if he can even understand the moans in my heart that I just can't seem to express in Hebrew, then, duh, I ought to pray. I ought to make a list of everything that I'm concerned about and I ought to tell it to the Lord. And that's exactly what verse 3 is implying. David says, oh, Yahweh, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. The phrase there, I prepare a sacrifice in Hebrew, is literally, I will arrange for you. I prepare a sacrifice. I will arrange for you. It is possible that David has in mind arranging an animal sacrifice, that he will slaughter this animal, then throw its blood everywhere per the book of Leviticus. And that's why the ESV translates it this way, as I prepare a sacrifice. The phrase is used in Leviticus 1 of the priest who would arrange the wood for the altar and the priest who would take the chunks of animal that had been cut apart and arrange them on the altar. Same phrase is used in Leviticus 24 where the priest would arrange the showbread. So it's a very decently and in order kind of verb. But I think that what David is saying when he says, I will arrange for you, is that he's saying he's getting his morning prayers ready. He has a list. He has things on his mind that are concerning him, and he wants to go to his king and unload. And that's why the Net Bible, the New English Translation, translates it this way. I will present my case to you. In other words, David knows that he is surrounded by enemies, by the living dead, by evil men, by zombies... So he plans on getting up in the morning and getting into the presence of Yahweh. And that's what a desperate, hurting, I just can't put everything into words. I can't even speak English. I just need to groan and cry heart does when it is overwhelmed. It plans on and gets busy praying to the king. The king who stoops down And listens. 
And then that kind of heart waits and watches just like David to see just how God is going to intervene. David is about to describe in detail the living dead that he sees all around him. But here he says, I will watch. I will wait. I see them and hear them, but I'm going to wait right here and watch and see what you do. That's faith. That's trust. That's dependence upon the character of God. And you can pray like David too. No matter what is surrounding you, if you can truly say to Jesus, my king and my God. Now, notice the contrast between David and his enemies. In verses 1 through 3, David uses these words to describe his prayer and his relationship with Yahweh. He says, words, groaning, sound of my cry, I pray, my voice. All of these words describe the relationship that David has with his God. He has access to a holy God And because he does, he prays and then he waits. But not so with the bloodthirsty men that have David surrounded. Look at verses 4 through 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. The word for there in verse 4 is very important. The reason that David can cry out to a holy God and have that God listen and respond, and the reason that David can wait expectantly for that God to intervene is precisely because of the word for. David can wait with hope precisely because he knows his God, because he knows Yahweh. And this is what David knows about the Lord. The Lord does not delight in wickedness. Evil may not dwell in his presence. No prideful person can stand upright before him. He hates All evildoers. He destroys liars. He abhors bloodthirsty and deceitful men. Our God is not the politically correct God that our culture would have him be, is he? God hates the living dead. He hates wicked, evil men. He hates bloodthirsty people. He hates prideful, arrogant, boastful people. So much for the oft-repeated evangelical phrase, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. That won't jive with the God of Psalm 5. He hates evildoers. The holy God of Psalm 5 is pretty outgoing with his righteous character and his righteous standards. He loves his creation. He loves everything, every human being, all this world that he made. But his creation is full of wicked rebels who hate him. And he doesn't take it lightly that the bloodthirsty living dead walk around devouring people. You don't serve a boring God, Grace. You don't serve a passive God. 
He hates bloodthirsty humans who walk around like zombies devouring the weak and the helpless. He hates the abortion doctor who rips the fetus from the womb. He hates the evil dictator that suppresses his people. He hates the perverted pedophile who abuses innocent children. He hates the sick and twisted people who trade human beings in slave and sex trade markets. And it is to this God that you pray. It is this God who stoops down even to listen to your heart to put into English groans, also known as prayers. And when you begin to understand your God and come to grips with and delight in his character, You'll understand what David has been trying to tell you all along. Never take the presence of God for granted. If you begin to understand Yahweh's character, who he is, how he responds to evil, wicked men who walk around like zombies wanting to devour the weak and the helpless, when you understand that about him, then you'll start praying to him. And instead of slandering world leaders on Facebook, you'll start praying to the God who not only hates wickedness, you'll start praying to the God who hates wicked men. You'll start praying that God would put abortion clinics out of business, that he would end human trafficking, that he would depose wicked world leaders. And you'll stop saying God hates the sin but loves the sinner. When you understand the character of Jesus, you'll start saying, God hates the sin, God hates the sinner, but he loves his adopted children. And that's exactly David's point as he leaves the bloodthirsty men of verses 4 through 6 behind and he runs into the presence of the Lord. Look at verses 7 and 8. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Again, notice the contrast here between David and the bloodthirsty men of verses 4 through 6. David says emphatically in the Hebrew, But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. The living dead, the wicked, the bloodthirsty evildoers can't even stand in God's presence because he's so holy. They have no access to God's presence. But David does. David has access to the holy God that hates evildoers. How can this be? Isn't David a sinner? Hasn't he done his share of wickedness? David would say, yes, yes. I have. I've done my share of evil and I still do. David would probably quote Martin Luther here who when he was brought before the popes and cardinals of his day for defending the the doctrine of of justification that sinners are made right with God because of what Jesus has already done and not what those sinners can do. This is what Luther said. I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. And David would say that too. I'm more afraid of my own heart than I am afraid of the bloodthirsty men who surround me. 
David would affirm that he is a sinner, but then he would start talking, as he does here in Psalm 5, about how he is able to enter the presence of God. He says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. How does David get into God's presence? It's all of grace. It's all due to Yahweh's hesed, that Hebrew word that means loyal covenant love, steadfast love. David does not enter a holy God's presence because of his own righteousness or because of his own goodness. It's all due to the Lord's loving kindness. And Yahweh's grace to David causes him to humble himself. He enters the presence of the Lord in fear because he knows that he is just as sinful as the wicked world leader, the abortion doctor, and the child abuser. David enters God's presence in humble fear and adoration. All of this is biblical worship. You are invited into God's presence because of his mercy and grace, and you enter Humbly with fear. There's confidence mixed with fear. The magnet of God's grace pulls David in and then he trembles. And that's about the best picture of worship that we have. I would describe worship as joyful trembling. Notice too that David fears Yahweh, not his enemies. He is aware of his enemies. He knows they are there. He knows they are bloodthirsty zombies. And that's why he prays for the Lord to lead him. And this is the same word that's used in Psalm 23, 3, where David says that the Lord will lead him in paths of righteousness. So when David says, lead me in your righteousness, he means lead me in the way that I am to go. Watch over my conduct. Make your ways evident before me. David is saying, Lord, there are evil men all around me. They could care less about you. They don't want to live for you, but I do, so help me. I don't think David is asking for protection here so much as he is saying that he wants to be faithful to Yahweh. He has tasted the grace of God, and he wants to respond appropriately in stark contrast to his bloodthirsty enemies. David wants to please the Lord. He has seen the Lord in his holy temple, and he does not want it to become old hat. He doesn't want it to become stale. In a nutshell, David is actually praying here, never let me take the presence of God for granted. And in case you forgot that his enemies were really all that bad, in case you feel the tug of our politically correct world that says you can never say anything negative about anybody, in case you are struggling with the truth that God could hate evildoers, David wants to remind you. Actually, he's reminding Yahweh. Look at verses 9 through 10. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter With their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. And there goes David again. He must have been watching some 80s horror movies because of the way he describes his enemies here. First, he says that their mouths are allergic to truth, there's no truth in their mouths. 
Their stomachs and their intestines are like a place of destruction. Their throats are like open graves. Because an open throat looks like an open grave. And then he says they have slip and slide tongues. The Hebrew is they make smooth their tongue. David is saying their tongues are like a slippery slope that leads to a grave-like throat which at the bottom is utter destruction. In other words, everything about these people, all that they are is evil, wicked, and destructive at their core. They are truly zombies. And so David's enemies are like zombies who walk around running their mouths. They are spewing forth lies. Everything about them is destructive. And what David means with this vivid description is that they are spiritually dead. They are the living dead. And that's why the Apostle Paul will quote this verse in Romans 3.13 to describe the living dead. To say that no one is righteous. All have sinned. And that's why David prays that his enemies would fall in verse 10. Because they are evil. I don't think David's prayer would be very popular today, even inside the church. Of course, the world would decry that this prayer was full of hate speech and that it was not politically correct, but some Christians might think so too. But this is a fine prayer to pray. No, don't pray this for your mother-in-law. Don't pray this for the person who took your, your seat in the sanctuary today. This is a prayer for David's enemies who are really God's enemies because they have rebelled against him, he says. That's what verse 10 is telling us. Make them bear their guilt. Let them fall. Why? Because of the abundance of their transgressions, because they have rebelled against you, Lord. Notice the contrast. David says, I am brought into your presence because of the abundance of your hesed, your steadfast love. They should be destroyed because of the abundance of their transgressions. Understand this, Grace. David can never pray verse 11, which we'll read in a few seconds, nor wait and watch for it to happen if he doesn't pray and then see God answer verse 10. David needs verse 11 answered, but it won't happen until his very guilty, very rebellious enemies are taken out. Look at verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Yahweh. You cover him with favor as with a shield. David can't enjoy safety and security and singing unless God takes out his enemies. About a month ago, some drug smugglers were caught on one of our beaches. And when we saw it on the news, my wife Heather said, Yes, Lord, thank you that they were caught. We don't need that stuff in our city. She realized that we can't sleep at night. We can't rest as a city. We can't enjoy peace on the central coast while bloodthirsty people roam our streets, while rapists are on the loose, while prisoners escape. That's David's prayer here. 
Catch them, Lord. They hate us. They hate your ways. They're like zombies. They're bloodthirsty. They prey on and devour the weak and the helpless. Make them bear their guilt, Lord. When's the last time you heard someone pray like that? It ought to be more common. Again, this is not a chance for you to pray this way because you are angry at someone or because they have hurt you. Don't pray this for your mother-in-law unless she's a wanted terrorist. I mean, a real terrorist, not because you think she is. But prayer sometimes puts the hand lotion down and puts on the boxing gloves. Prayer sometimes puts the hand lotion down and it gets out the boxing gloves. David wants to experience the presence of God but the living dead must be dealt with first. David is saying, deal with them, Lord, but then ignite our hearts for you. Let everyone who runs to you for protection rejoice. Let those who run to you sing and and keep on singing. Spread your protection over them. Those who know your name and know your character, may they exalt and delight in your character. For you bless your people And cover them with favor as a shield. David once again highlights the fact that he and the people of God know their God. They know Yahweh and they know his ways. They know his character. They know how merciful and gracious he is. And because they have tasted that, it makes them sing. And that's what the gospel does. He gets down into your pores, and you can't help but sing and be glad. Think about it. If you were once among the living dead, and through the gospel message, the Holy Spirit made you alive, and you are now adopted into the family of God, wouldn't it be strange not to delight in that truth? If you were once spiritually dead, once a zombie, once a bloodthirsty, wicked sinner, wouldn't it seem strange to not rejoice that Jesus has saved you? If Ephesians 2.13 is true for you today, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. If that's true for you, don't you think it would be a good idea to exult in his name right now? I do. Jesus has spread his protection over us. He has blessed us. He has covered us with favor like a shield. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And you can be made right with a holy God today by owning up to your sin. By saying, I'm a rebel. I was born a rebel because of Adam's sin. I didn't ask for this, but I was born a wicked, bloodthirsty sinner like every other human being. God, please have mercy on me. God, please forgive me. And then you trust that Jesus came to live the life that you could never live because you're a sinner. And you trust that Jesus died the death that you deserve precisely because you're a sinner. And you believe that God raised him from the dead. He came back from the dead. 
You believe and trust in that. And you will be born again. You will be made alive spiritually. You will no longer be the living dead. You will no longer be a zombie. You will be adopted into the family of God and be a child of God. That's the gospel. That's good news. And that's why we should never take the presence of God for granted. So, former zombies, let's stand and praise our God and our King, Jesus. Remember, he listens. He listens to our groaning. And he listens to our singing even when we're off key. So stand and open your mouth. Your mouth that used to be an open grave. You used to use your tongue to flatter and boast and speak lies, but you're not a zombie anymore. Use your tongue now to rejoice, to sing for joy, to exult in him, because that's what former zombies do. Because they believe that there is one hope for sinners, and that hope is Jesus, the one who came back from the dead who came out of the grave. We have been joined in his body, joined in his blood, joined in his death, joined in his resurrection. Let's pray.